Hello all and warmest welcomes to another edition of the True Crime Enthusiast podcast, your friendly neighbourhood North Wales cat-mithered one-person true crime show that looks for tales that are more uncommon, more unfamiliar and sometimes much more macabre from all corners of the UK and Ireland. I'm the creator, host and true crime enthusiast of the show's title, Paul. You guys are you guys, my wonderful and cherished enthusiasts that help keep the show turning over. It's fabulous as it always is to have you guys here joining me, which I thank you very kindly for, and I hope that as the episode drops for you, that you're all good and that you're all well. Now, not too much rambling and waffle at the start here, because in what seems an oxymoron to say, we've a series opener to close off here. But I must say massive thanks first for your feedback and messages concerning part one of the series opener, The Burning, and secondly, for all of my returning and new Patreon supporters of the show. With shout-outs going around this time to new friends Martin Austin, Martin Peters, Linda Barker, Karen Gillian, Emma Louise, Heather Hubbard, Hannah Jackson, Anne Sharp and Manders L for supporting the show, plus Krista Berg and Catherine Spencer-Cook who've opted to become annual show supporters. It's so much appreciated of you, you kind folk, and some have got some stuff winging its way to you, and I do hope that you've managed to begin getting through some of the 23 unreleased bonus Patreon episodes of the show that being a supporter brings access to, with the latest one, To Kill and Kill Again, dropping just the other day, and it's a horrific tale also, that is. Now if you want to join these guys and hear this one, or others such as The Mystery of Leatham Street, The Rotten Rose of Devon, or Obsession by the Sea, to name just some of them, then it's so cheap too it should live in a nest, and it's easier to do than looking at a picture of the contestants on any series, choose one of The Apprentice and playing Spot the Bell End. Just head on over to the Patreon site and seek out the True Crime Enthusiast podcast, always with a podcast suffix there, then quicker than your sex drive diminishing after your other half does the Valentine shop from the nookie shelves at Poundland, and I've seen them with my own eyes, they do exist, you can be hearing these and others, and you may even have a lucky bag heading your way, you lucky people, who knows. I'd also like to remind folk that tickets for CrimeCon 2021 are still available, still with a generous 10% discount off at checkout should you use the code ENTHUSIAST while you're doing so. And to address something that several people have got in touch with me inquiring about, should the date of the event need to be moved, owing to the current circumstances, then all purchase tickets for the event will still be valid for the rescheduled dates. And should the event require to be cancelled, again owing to the current circumstances, then refunds will be available. Right now, it is still steaming ahead, and alongside some of the other hosts that you know and love, I'll be there as well and it'll be great seeing some of you guys there to chat killers and all sorts, put the world to rights, share a beer, what are you waiting for, go balls deep and get yourselves there. Now if Mr T were here, he'd be saying, Paul, quit your jibber-jabber, but he isn't, he only comes round on Thursdays, so he'd never get through my hometown with so much gold on him anyway, it'd be in bloody cash converters before you knew it and spent on spice, So, but I'll take his words of wisdom on board and crack on. So, because I originally wrote the previous opening episode of the series and this one in one altogether, The Burning, I won't go through the usual pre-case meander through the usual bollocks that I do. I decided to split this one down into two parts because when it was in its original form, it was running longer than Bill Withers saying day, so I thought I'd best double it up. Perhaps I'm like that when I've had a series break, as I know I did it last year with the body on Corstuffin Hill. That's Corstuffin. Corstorfin, for all of the pronunciation police out there, I thank you. So, we're straight back into part two of The Burning. Now, if you haven't heard part one already, then you're best off heading back there and having a listen in, because this will make bugger all sense, really. I do do a slight recap here, but it's always best to get the full scope of anything, isn't it? And I do say this often, I know, and it's not meant to insult anyone's common sense, But I have had in the past, especially I remember when I did Maniac last year, someone actually got in touch with me after Samantha and Jasmine's tale had gone out and asked in all seriousness, why have you started a multi-parter with part two? Yeah, seriously. And I was like, well, I haven't. Your mum must have been a right weightlifter to raise a fucking dumbbell like you, wasn't she? What can I say? Some people, eh? So me saying that is not a generalisation for everyone 
It's just for the magical few out there. If you have already listened and you're raring to go like a care home after a second vaccine, then in part one of the burning, we heard of the horrific arson attack on the home of the Khan family in the Oxford suburb of Cowley in the early hours of 27th of August 1997, resulting in the deaths, the murders, of 15-year-old Majid Khan and his 8-year-old sister Anum. Police soon discovered a bitter feud between the Khan family and a family called Munchi, the youngest daughter of which had formerly been in a secret relationship with the eldest son of the Khans, Amjad, and which this feud had its genesis in. When this relationship ceased, it led to bad blood between the two families, culminating in the fatal fire which killed Majid and Anum. No less than nine people were arrested as a result of the subsequent investigations, with six of them being charged with murder and attempted murder and who faced a lengthy trial at Birmingham Crown Court in October and November 1998, where they each denied the charges against them, and which is where we got up to as part one ended. So let's see what went down from where we left them. The episode contains details and descriptions of crimes and events involving children that some listeners may find disturbing and or distressing, so please use discretion whilst listening in all. Bearing that in mind, Please join the True Crime Enthusiast for the second part of the sixth series opener, part two of a case I've entitled The Burning. Following an eight-week trial on Monday the 23rd of November 1998, after hours of deliberation spread across four days, the jury of seven men and five women reached an 11-to-1 majority verdict on each of the double murder charges against 18-year-old defendants Alan Swanton and Thomas Liedel, and 21-year-old Mohammed Nawaz, finding each guilty of the murders of Anum and Majid Khan and the attempted murders of the other five members of the Khan family who were in the house at the time. It took several more days of deliberations, but guilty verdicts of a 10-2 majority on the same charges were reached by the jury a week later, on the 30th of November, against 31-year-old Hak Nawaz and 20-year-old Haroon Sharif. Upon the guilty verdict, each of the aforementioned were sentenced to two counts of life imprisonment by presiding Mr Justice Jowett. As the verdicts were read out on each, applause, cheers and emphatic shouts of yes were heard from the Khan family members and their supporters who were sat in the Birmingham Crown Court public gallery. There was, however, uncertainty in the case of Riaz Munshi and the jury failed to reach a verdict in her case. Stephen KQC, who was defending Munchie, had told Birmingham Crown Court that she was not part of the plot to start the fire, and had only accompanied the others to Oxford out of loyalty to her sister, Fiaz. Mr K also claimed that she'd been prepared to support sister Fiaz during each of her younger sister's earlier conflicts with the Khan family, but this did not subsequently mean that she was part of the murder plot, and descriptions of Riaz as being, I quote, tough, determined, ruthless and angry, were inaccurate. Mm, yeah, okay. Riaz Munchi began to weep as she was led away from the dock. However, the jury's decision wasn't the ticket to freedom that she may have been expecting. Thames Valley Police did issue a statement immediately afterwards saying that they would be requesting a retrial in her case which kept Riaz Munshi in custody until a decision on this could be reached later the same month. Now a retrial for Munshi was granted only some days later, and was scheduled to take place at Leicester Crown Court in November of the following year. Though whether she was bailed awaiting trial, or was kept further on remand, I was unable to ascertain. I do hope that it was the latter. Following the guilty verdict, Majid and Anum's grieving parents Mohammed and Mafuz Khan said they were pleased with the jury's decision, but mournfully that nothing would compensate for the loss of their son and daughter. They thanked the police, the judge and the jury, and then Mr and Mrs Khan and their daughters gathered outside the court and held up a banner in memory of Anum and Majid. The Khan family were also back in the same court at a later hearing just over a week later, to determine the minimum tariffs that, to, that were to be set on the five killers. The family listening passively on the 3rd of December 1998, 
as the five killers of Anum and Majid were told they would serve a combined minimum term of 91 years between them. Hak Nawaz and Harun Sharif, said in court to be the ringleaders of the arson attack, being given 22 years minimum tariffs each, Mohammed Nawaz a 17-year tariff, and Alan Swanton and Thomas Liedel, who had fuelled and ignited the blaze, 15-year tariffs each. So what do you guys think? Is it fair? Too lenient? Too harsh? Following the ruling, Mohammed Khan told the Oxford Mail newspaper, The sentences are way too little. It is a joke. They should be in prison for life. They are very nasty people. This has brought the memories back to us. Our life is finished. They should not be let out at all, because they are dangerous people. Now the defendants were far from the last people to face prosecutions concerning the crime either. Some months before the trial, on the night of Sunday the 19th of July 1998, what was described as, I quote, an angry mob of between 15 to 50 people, some wielding weapons including a knife, hockey stick and machete, stormed the family home of Haroon Sharif in Morrill Road, smashing up the downstairs rooms of the house and wrecking Sharif's car, after what had begun as a peaceful procession led through the streets of Cowley in memory of Majid and Anum, turned into something else, with emotions running high. This incident led to charges of aggravated burglary and violent disorder raised against a number of individuals, who were committed for trial and appeared the following year, although I couldn't find through researching the outcome of any court proceedings nor any possible sentences that were handed down. Then, in October 1999, 43-year-old Parveen Sharif, the mother of Haroon Sharif, and three of his sisters, 20-year-old Sima, 19-year-old Sadaf, and 17-year-old Asfar, were each convicted at Birmingham Crown Court of conspiracy to pervert the course of justice relating to the arson attack, and on Friday the 26th of November, each received custodial sentences. The four women had been arrested and charged at the same time as Sharif and the other murder accused had, having lied to police officers and provided them with false written and recorded testimony in order to provide a false alibi for Haroon Sharif for the night of the fire. That same month, the retrial of Riaz Munshi began, this time at Leicester Crown Court, and this time, following a three-week trial, the jury was unanimous in their verdict. Guilty, but not of murder, the jury instead arriving at a verdict of guilty of manslaughter. On the 15th of December 1999, which happened to be Riaz Munshi's 28th birthday, she was sentenced to 13 years imprisonment for the part that she had played in the fire. What a birthday present. It's hardly a new bike or the bloody Millennium Falcon or anything, is it? So there were, and I think this miraculously really, no charges raised against Sunder Kutan or Sarah Moon, guilty verdicts and prison sentences for the other six involved, but to Thames Valley Police, and most importantly, the Khan family, there was still that one that had seemingly gotten away, Fiaz Munchi. At the time the rest of the gang were arrested, right up until they went on trial in October 1998, the Khan family had been vocal in their calls to the powers that be for Fiaz Munchi to be brought back from Pakistan to face charges, but no extradition was forthcoming. Pakistan does not have an extradition treaty with the UK, although it's reported that the legal processes to create one have been initiated and are currently in the initial stages. The Khan family always knew that she had a big part, perhaps the biggest part according to certain testimony that was heard at the 1998 trial, in the plan to burn their house down, and as a result, caused the deaths of their two youngest children. Her escape from justice and her liberty in Pakistan tormented them as time went on, so much so that it completely broke the health of Mafuz Khan. So devastated was Mafuz that one of her children's killers was still free, something that ate away at her so much because it felt to her like a failure to her children all over again. Mafuz could not even bring herself to visit her children's graves, finding it too hard because so much remained unresolved. She'd never felt able to go. 
Now, you can't imagine, I'm sure you don't want to imagine, what pain like that must be like. It was still tormenting the family in 2012, some 15 years after the fire, by which time Alan Swanton, Thomas Liedl, and even Riaz Munchie were each coming to be released from prison. The minimum terms, and in Munchie's case, almost complete sentence, all served. But things were about to change, as I'll tell you after a short word from the sponsors of the show. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Now this past year that's just gone has been a hellish one for us all, hasn't it? And understandably, some of us are struggling, aren't we? It may just be the effects of the situation that the world faces right now for some, but for others, there may be more specific things troubling them. Personally, I'm concerned for my loved ones and how I can best make sure that I'm there for them as best and as safely as I can be because I've got the right work-life balance to do so. So whatever is interfering with your happiness, this is where better help comes in. Now just to clarify, it isn't self-help. Better help instead assesses your needs and matches you up with your very own licensed professional therapist who are specialised in all manner of issues from relationship and family conflicts right through to depression and stress for professional counselling. BetterHelp is available for clients worldwide, it's much more affordable than traditional offline counselling, and you can start communicating in less than 24 hours in an online environment that's safe, confidential and convenient for you. There's even financial aid available for the service if it's needed. You'll get timely and thoughtful responses from a counsellor that you can get in touch with anytime. You can schedule weekly video or phone sessions with them if you wish. And all without the uncomfortableness that goes with sitting around in a waiting room because nobody likes that, do they? I want you to start living a happier life today. As a listener, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting our sponsor at betterhelp.com forward slash TCE and join over 1 million people who've taken charge of their mental health. Again, that's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com, forward slash, T-C-E. This episode is brought to you once again by Best Fiends. Now, do you enjoy puzzle strategy games that propagate the grey matter going and have you thinking two moves ahead, yet are casual and colourful enough so that anybody can play and enjoy them? Then why not try Best Fiends. I found Best Fiends to be the perfect thing for breaks between researching and writing the show, and over time I've been wheedling my way through its colourful little lands and zones, defeating slugs, collecting diamonds, as well as discovering and levelling up its fun little characters who help you as you play, such as Whisper, Carmen, and Beebert, to name just a couple. Constantly updating, Best Fiends never has that tired feel, and it always looks fresh and slick. And for the times we face right now, socially distanced and away from our friends and loved ones, it's a perfect way to stay in touch with those that you can't see, as you can stay connected by playing alongside them, or you can simply enjoy playing it by yourself. You don't even need to be connected online to enjoy Best Fiends. Before you know it, you'll be fiending your way through level after level, and you'll be as hooked on Best Fiends as I am. Engage your brain with fun puzzles and collect tons of cute characters. Trust me, with over 100 million downloads, this 5-star rated mobile puzzle game is a must-play. Download Best Fiends free on the Apple App Store or Google Play. That's Best Fiends, friends without the R, Best Fiends. In September 2012 then, Nazmin Khan began having recurring nightmares about Fias Munchi. She claimed later to the Oxford Mail newspaper that the family had never felt right that Fias Munchi had not faced court with the others 14 years before, and that it had haunted them, adding, She was never forgotten, she was always there. But Nazmin especially was troubled by this. Each nightmare would be filled with haunting images of her late brother Majid in the aftermath of the horrific burns that he'd received following the fire. And in each of the dreams, Nazmin recalled the same thing. Fiaz Munchi was lurking there in the background. Nazmin said later, I suppose, subconsciously, I was thinking she had gotten away with it, and that wasn't right. I'd never had that kind of nightmare before. 
So powerful and frequent were these dreams that at the end of September 2012, they prompted Nazmin to make a call to Thames Valley Police and request an update over the possibility of extraditing Fias Munchi from Pakistan to possibly face charges relating to the deaths of her brother and sister. They told her that Fias Munchi was flagged up for them to be notified immediately should she return to the UK for the possibility of her facing charges relating to the deaths of Majid and Anum. But sure enough, to their credit and out of courtesy to Nazmin, inquiries were made about this by Thames Valley Police only for them to discover, fairly quickly and easily, that Fias Munchi was already back in the UK and had been living here since 2004. I'll just let that sink in somewhat. Yep. Nazmin said later that the Khan family had always remained convinced that Fias was still living beyond reach in Pakistan, adding, We always thought she was there and was still there. We never had a clue she was back here. It transpired that Fias Munshi, who you'll remember, fled to Pakistan on the 9th of December 1997, just two days before the arrests of her sister, her boyfriend and all others concerned, and had settled there, first staying to look after her terminally ill father, who had returned back there from Sheffield some years before. After he had passed away in April 1998, Fias had remained in the country. She had married there in 2001 and gone on to have four children before venturing first to Paris from Pakistan in June 2003, then returning to Pakistan some two months later and then returning to the UK on her own passport in February 2004. Fias and her children had first lived up in Sheffield where she'd been born and raised as her father had lived there for many years and where the Munshi family still had relatives, before being joined in the UK by her husband some months after this, and by 2012, the family had eventually settled in Manly Road, a quiet residential street in the town of Oldham in Greater Manchester. Now, it also transpired that Thames Valley Police had been alerted by Greater Manchester Police as far back as 2004 that Fias Munchi was back in the UK, but due to what was described later as, I quote, a processing error, now whether that means an email being deleted, a memo being lost, who knows what shamble of bollocks that means, but in whatever form, this information was lost, meaning that any plans to question Munchie with regards to bringing possible charges against her were delayed by eight years. It's up there with the Derbyshire lot, that, as we heard last series with Lynn's case, isn't it? Five days after she herself had reported a crime that had occurred in her street, like the good citizen she wished now to portray herself as, the now 38-year-old Fias Begum Munshi was arrested by detectives from Thames Valley Police at her home on the morning of Tuesday, October the 22nd, 2013, where she was then conveyed to Thames Valley Police headquarters and questioned at length over two days about the blaze in Magdalen Road on the 26th of August 1997. Munshi, and you can see an extract from the police interview video with her in a link in the episode show notes, where watching it, it struck me that she looks almost dead behind the eyes, innit? Munshi replied to each of the questions that officers put to her with either an uninterested yawn, a blank look, or a chain of no comment answers. And two days after being arrested, on Thursday the 24th of October, she was charged with the murders of Anum and Majid Khan in August 1997. She appeared before Oxford magistrates the following day and was remanded in custody for seven days, before a week later she appeared for the first time at Oxford Crown Court. Munshi, who wore a black headscarf, black cardigan and patterned grey dress to appear before the court, spoke only to confirm her full name and her date of birth during the 15-minute hearing before being remanded once again to await trial. No application for bail was made, and as Munshi was led from the dock, there were cries of anguish from members of her family in the packed public gallery of the court. More than six months later, 
Fiaz Munshi pleaded not guilty to the murders of Anum and Majid Khan when a trial began at Oxford Crown Court on Wednesday the 4th of June 2014, presided over by Mr Justice Robin Spencer. Opening the prosecution's case, Neil Moore QC outlined to the court of the horrific events, as we heard in part one, of the night of the fire, and further that the fire in August 1997 was the culmination of, I quote, a background of hostility, explaining that it stemmed from the Khan family blaming the bad influence of the Munshi sisters after their son Amjad, who was in a secret relationship with Fiaz Munshi at the time, was jailed for plotting to deal heroin. Mr Moore said, Of the two sisters, it was Fiaz Munshi who held the biggest grudge against the Khan family. Members of the Khan family then gave evidence to the court with sisters Shanaz and Nazmin Khan telling of the fights involving Fiaz and Riaz Munchi before the blaze, outlining how they beforehand went to speak to Sharif and his family, asking them to leave Amjad alone in prison, then went to the Munchi's house in Freelands Road to request that they do the same. Prosecutor Neil Moore asked, What happened next? Shanaz told the court, They both attacked me, and were using the nails and scratching and just grabbing my hair. I clearly remember my sister Anise was on her back on the floor, and both the Munchie sisters were literally on top of her, punching her. She then told the court the events of the fight in the shopping centre, with that had led to the Munchie sisters being arrested and charged with assault. On the third day of the trial, Anis Khan was given evidence and told the court about the harassment how they were sometimes silent but mostly nuisance or abusive telephone calls to the house landline continuously, and it was believed by the Khan family that Munshi and his sister Riaz were behind these, as sometimes it was two female voices that could be heard giving the abuse and threats. Anis said that Anum herself had answered a call only the evening before the fire, saying, She told my dad, it's those silly girls again. Defence barrister Stephen Camlish QC put it to her that this had been made up, as it had not been mentioned in Anis's first statement to police, given just two days after the fire. He said, You and your sisters and brother have all thought about the impression you are creating with the jury, and you are thinking carefully about how you are giving your evidence. Anis replied, That's untrue. My statement was made a very long time ago, and at that time, we had had an unthinkable and unbelievable loss. Prosecutor Neil Moore, in his turn, said to Anis about the accusation, It is being suggested that this is a family invention. What do you say to that? She replied, There would be no need. We had suffered a great loss and had gone through a lot of pain coming to terms with what happened. The events of the setting of the fire were then described in detail. Neil Moore telling the court how Swanton and Liedl had approached the house, continuing, Then what must have been a substantial amount of petrol was squirted into the hallway of the house through the letterbox. The petrol fumes were then ignited, and the fire began in the hallway and swept up the stairs with some considerable ferocity and into the three bedrooms on the upper level. And we know of the horrific aftermath, don't we? This was then followed by arguably the most powerful evidence of the trial to be heard, as Mafuz's Khan's compelling testimony of her actions on the night was then given, although Neil Moore told the jurors he would read Mafuz's statement in her absence because it was too upsetting for her to hear it again in full, and she subsequently left the courtroom, as you can imagine, based on the extracts that we heard in the previous episode. He also read out to the court a victim impact statement from Mahfouz and Mohammed Khan, which reads as follows. A mother has a God-given instinct to always protect and nurture her children. I have spent the last 17 years wishing I could change places with my son Majid and daughter Anum to take away the inhumane horror and pain they suffered on that night. For the rest of my life, I live with a continuous guilt that I could not save them. Describing how cricket-mad Majid wished to play for England one day, and Anum loved nothing more than dancing and writing princess stories, Mafuz added, 
I see my son Majid engulfed in flames jumping from the window and imagine my daughter Anum asleep and oblivious in her bed with no hope or chance of escape. Anum and Majid never got the chance to chase their dreams. Many years have passed and I still can't sleep for more than a few hours at a time. During these few hours of sleep, I always dream and find myself calling out for my lost angels, Majid and Anum, taken away from me so mercilessly. She furthered that since their deaths, she'd been sectioned for depression, had become anorexic, and had even tried to take her own life, adding, I may be living and breathing, but a big part of me died that night. Anum and Majid's father, Muhammad Khan, added, Until this day, I am a broken man. I still can't understand how much hate these people had. They knew that my wife and children were inside and didn't hesitate to think about what they were doing. I bet you could have heard a bloody pin drop in that courtroom. Poor, poor people. It's unbelievable, isn't it? Sunder Kutan also appeared as a prosecution witness, in which he repeated his story from 16 years previously, almost verbatim, right down to Fias Munchi pointing out the Khan household to others as they drove past. Neil Moore asked him, What was Fias Munchi's mood like? Kutan replied, She was erratic and acted like a psychopath. She said, I'm going to make sure that that house gets burned down. Kutan then broke down in tears as he told the court that he'd spent his life trying to get over what had happened, claiming, I've tried to forget about it, smoking and drinking. I was told to move on with my life, but 16 years later, the police knock on your door and ask you to remember everything. Heart bleeds for you. Amjad Khan, arguably the linchpin in which the whole events revolved around, also gave evidence to the court. Now by this time he was a free man of course, long since having turned his life around, and he described how back in 1996, he had tried to keep his relationship with Munshi a secret from his family, adding, It is not really acceptable in a Muslim family for a Muslim girl to be going out with a guy without marriage. He described how, at the urging of his family following his conviction for possession of heroin, he had ended his relationship with Munchi, and she had taken it badly, leading to the campaign of harassment and conflict towards his family, which had ultimately resulted in the deaths of his siblings. But when cross-examined by defence barrister Stephen Kamlish, Amjad Khan denied that the real motive for the fire was because of a drug turf war that he was involved in with Haroon Sharif. Mr. Kamlish said that Sharif had visited Amjad in prison the day before the fire was set, and during this visit, Amjad had been asked about a stash of drugs and money. Mr. Kamlish said Amjad had played his part as a drug dealer down and lied about the depth of his involvement in drug dealing, saying he was not as naive as he made out. He went on, The following argument occurred because Haroon Sharif wanted his money that you were still holding some £8,000 which had been mentioned. Amjad replied, No, that was not mentioned, there was no such thing. Now this was a line of questioning that went nowhere really, based on the previous verdicts, although it did show just how much Haroon Sharif was in the firing line as the instigator. It was a last-ditch attempt to place the blame firmly away from the only witness called by the defence, the accused. Fiaz Munchi. When she took the stand, she told the court that she had returned to the UK from Pakistan in 2004, as she had nothing to hide, saying, Why should I not come back? I've not done anything wrong. I've got nothing to hide. I am not guilty of murder. Munchi went on to tell jurors that she had not fled to Pakistan as had been made out, but rather had gone there to care for her sick father saying it was for her to escape an unhappy home. The court heard how the former Donington Middle School pupil, who had once harboured aspirations of a career in either legality or law enforcement, had been so unhappy growing up that she had attempted suicide at age 14. 
Her elder brothers, she told the court, were abusive and controlling and regularly beat her and her sister. She also said that she and Riaz were facing arranged marriages that they did not want to enter into. Accused of rebelling against this lifestyle and ultimately adapting a more westernised way of living which ultimately led to her being involved in a revenge arson attack which left two children dead, Munchie fiercely denied this and told the court, I'd never do anything as evil as this. I think they are evil and sick to do that. The court heard that Munchie had initially denied being anywhere near Oxford on the night of the fire when she was first spoken to back in 1997, but had ultimately admitted to police that she was in one of two cars that had travelled to Oxford that night. However, Fias told the court that she merely thought that she was going there to fight the elder Khan sister Shinaz that evening, and denied that she was armed with a knife intending on disfiguring her, adding, I would have pulled her hair and punched her, but nothing more. When asked if she knew about any plans to set a fire, she denied having any knowledge of the plan, claiming that her boyfriend at the time, Hak Nawaz, had never told her about it and had indeed forced her to come along. She said, No, not at all. I only agreed to go because I was scared of him. If I had known about it, I would never have gone with him. She also claimed that she had never seen Swanton and Lidl in the other car, and further that Hack Nawaz had told her to lie to the police after the fire, which she had done so only out of fear. Speaking then about her time on remand, the mother of four told the court, I wasn't allowed to see my children, and someone in prison said I was a child killer. My children think that I'm abroad. I don't feel like a human. People keep staring at me like I'm some sort of a caged animal. I'm not here to be looked at. I'm here to be found innocent. In his closing speech, Neil Moore told the court that Munchie had lied repeatedly on the witness stand, stating that she knew nothing about the plan and claiming that the Khan house was actually targeted because of a drugs debt that was owed to Haroon Sharif. Mr Moore told the jury, these are mere dust clouds whipped up to cloud the true picture. He asked why the family of the victims would hide the true motive of the attack from the police and prevent justice being done, saying, It is inconceivable, isn't it, that the whole family would choose to make up lies? He suggested it was more likely that Munshi was not telling the truth. He added that the defendant was, I quote, hostile on the night of the attack and was involved in a relationship with the main organiser of the attack, Hak Nawaz. He claimed that all the evidence pointed to the fact that the siblings were killed when Munshin and her accomplices targeted the home, and said, When you put all that together, the prosecution say that you can be sure that Fiaz Munshi is guilty. You can be sure Fiaz Munshi was part of a plan, a plan in which she intended the occupants of that house to be killed or seriously injured, or at least she foresaw that was a real possibility. Nobody suggested that Anum and Majid Khan were on her hit list. She was an extremely embittered young woman who wanted revenge on that family. She was exceptionally close to the plan, and it was inconceivable that she wasn't part of it. Munshi's barrister, Stephen Camlish, in his closing speech, countered, she is about an abused a person as you can imagine. She has been abused by everyone since she was young. She is a classic abused woman. At the end of the day, the only person in her life who showed her any love and any understanding was Amjad Ali Khan. There is no way a reasonable juror could possibly say that someone in that relationship would want to burn down the house and kill the occupants of the family of the person she loved. He also gave several other points which he said suggested to another motive for the crime, including evidence about the alleged drug debt, even down to a claim that Majid had at one time damaged a BMW belonging to Haroon Sharif. Mr Camlish said, It all builds up and it makes a really strong case that the fire was driven by Haroon Sharif and the drug war. 
Given the jury legal direction, Mr Justice Spencer said they should convict Munchie of the murders only if they were sure she intended to kill or cause serious harm to anyone in the house. He also said Munchie would be guilty if the jury found she knew about the plan to burn the house down and had encouraged others to do it, but he said jurors could convict Munchie of manslaughter if they found she unlawfully caused the death of the siblings, intending to cause bodily harm, or realised there was a risk someone would suffer bodily harm. He also warned jurors to leave emotion out of their decision making, saying, In cases as harrowing as this, there is a danger of influence by sympathy. You must put aside all feelings of sympathy and empathy in this case. The jury did just that. At 3.15pm on Tuesday the 22nd of July 2014, after almost eight hours of deliberation, the jury returned with a unanimous verdict of not guilty of the murders of Anuman Majid Khan, but unanimously guilty of two counts of manslaughter, prompting audible consternation from the public gallery. Munshi had shown no other emotion throughout the trial, but had tears in her eyes and looked repeatedly at the floor, then bowed her head and broke down as the verdict was read out. With sentencing deferred until the following day, Munshi gave a slight wave to her family and supporters in the public gallery as she was then led from the dock. Mr Justice Spencer then thanked both the Khan family and Munshi supporters in the public gallery for the, I quote, dignified way that they'd conducted themselves throughout the trial and had listened as the verdict was read out. But the judge spoke too soon as just moments later, after the judge had left court, shouts broke out from both sides in the courtroom, and both groups had to be pulled apart by police officers and security guards. The powder keg that such emotional proceedings are always based on, erupting. Speaking after the unanimous manslaughter verdicts were returned, senior investigating officer in the case, Detective Inspector Craig Kirby, apologised personally to the Khan family for the error that had delayed the arrest and conviction of Fiaz Munshi for manslaughter when she returned to the UK in 2004. He said, It appears the information that Fiaz Munshi was back in the UK was not processed properly when it was sent to Thames Valley Police in 2004. It also appears that despite the original investigator's belief she would remain listed as wanted on the police national computer, meaning she would be arrested on the return to the UK. This did not happen. Investigations conducted by the current investigation team have been unable to ascertain why the information in 2004 was not acted upon or why the wanted marker did not remain. If it had been processed, this trial would have inevitably have taken place some years earlier. I appreciate that it was a significant and serious mistake which prevented us bringing Fiaz Munshi to justice earlier. But that was never going to stop us proceeding with this case, because it was the right thing to have done. Eight years though, eh? Imagine how you'd feel eight years. The following day, Fiaz Munshi was back in the court for sentencing. Now the sentencing remarks of Mr Justice Spencer are available in a link in the episode show notes to read in full. And they do make for an interesting read. Things like that always do in these cases if they're available, don't they? Summarising them, the judge told Munshi, It was you who had the greatest grudge towards the family. You were well aware of the more sinister plan of setting the fire. There's no doubt you knew how dangerous the fire was. You left the country for Pakistan soon after the fire because the heat was on. Just two days after your departure, your sister, your boyfriend and the other defendants were all arrested and charged. I am prepared to accept that you were under pressure from your husband and your own family not to return to this country. You and they must have known that if you returned to the United Kingdom before the trial of your sister and the other defendants, or soon after their trials were over, you were likely to be arrested and charged as well. In the result, you have enjoyed years of freedom and family life that you should never then have had. The day of reckoning has now arrived. You have shown no genuine remorse whatsoever, either at the time 
or when you were arrested last year or during the course of the trial. Had you remained in the United Kingdom, you too would have been arrested, charged and tried along with the others in 1998. By 2004, you thought it was safe to return to this country. You did not expect to be brought to justice. But justice has a long reach and a long memory. Boom, I always love the summing up remarks. Such a wonderful grasp of words, isn't it? It's almost theatrical. As I say, have a read of the full sentencing remarks in the link in the episode show notes. Fiaz Munchi was then sentenced to 13 years imprisonment, being told that she would have to serve two-thirds of this sentence before entitlement to release on life licence. She would be eligible for parole consideration after serving half of this sentence, but only at the recommendation of the parole board. After Munshi was taken away to begin this long overdue sentence, Mafuz Khan then stood and thanked the judge, saying, God bless you, my lord, thank you. Outside the court, pink and blue balloons were then released by the family of Majid and Anum Khan, stood wearing t shirts with the children's names and Justice at Last written on the front. Shinaz Khan struggled to hold back tears as she gave an emotional statement, saying, It has always been part of our daily lives knowing she hadn't been brought to justice. We knew that day would come when she would be arrested and tried. We knew when the time was right and through the will of God. You cannot escape something serious like that. For all of us, it's closure and justice will finally be done. It's mainly for my mother and my father and I'm so glad that they're well enough to see justice being done. All the people who've been around us from the beginning to the end will understand what this means for us and how we've suffered. They were just so beautiful, innocent children who were taken away from us in a cowardly way. It has taken 17 years for Fiaz Munchi to be brought to justice for the killings of Majid and Anum. This is despite members of the Oxford community who have known her whereabouts ever since she fled the UK. She went on to have four children of her own, and I hope her family now feel a semblance of the pain that she perpetrated upon us. Finally, after 17 years, we can now grieve properly and visit Majid and Anum's grave together for the first time as a family and with our parents. This is the happiest day of our lives, and we carried on fighting for Majid and Anum, who will always remain deep within our hearts. She went on to say that following the deaths of Majid and Anum, every new child that is now born into the Khan family now receives the middle name of either Anum or Majid, adding, That is going to carry on forever. That is a gift we were able to give to our children who weren't born at the time so they could have a connection. The day after Munshi was sentenced, the Khan family including Anum and Majid's mother Mafuz, paid an emotional visit to their graves in North Hinksy Lane's Botley Cemetery. As we said before, Mafuz had never felt able to visit before then, having too much unresolved. Aside from this being her first visit since her children were laid to rest there almost 17 years before, it was the first time the Khan family had been there together as a family. A blanket of flowers, including dozens of sunflowers, Anum's favourites, were placed over their graves as the family paid its emotional respects to the children, and Mafuz wept as she knelt beside their headstones. She repeatedly said, Forgive me, I could not save you that night. You can't even imagine, can you, what that must take from someone. Now, there's a link within the episode show notes in which and this was at the invitation of the Khan family, reporters had accompanied them on this visit, and you can clearly see how emotional a visit this was for them. Now I must admit it felt a bit voyeuristic to me seeing it, but the link is there for you to see anyway. It forms part of the report that was given after Munchie's sentencing. A testimony from the Khan family, written however long before who knows, was left there as a tribute following their visit, which read simply, Majid and Anum, both special in every way. 
their beautiful smiles remembered by many, personalities that glowed and they were both full of life, caring, considerate and loving. Majid was always bursting with enthusiasm and a charmer. Anum was like a delicate flower, beautiful, shy, prim and intelligent. We have always loved you and both of you have remained deep in our hearts. You are in a special place and one day we will meet. We knew this day would come with the will of Allah and that justice would be done. We never gave up and we never forgot all we ever wanted was justice for you and for us. Our prayers were finally answered. We love you so much that words can't explain. We love you both even more. Fiaz Munchi did appeal a sentence which was heard on the 19th of March 2015 before a hearing at London's Criminal Appeal Court. Her barrister Stephen Cavendish asked the panel of the three judges, chaired by Lord Justice Pitchford, to cut her sentence, arguing that the delay in her being tried and sentenced was not her fault and ought to have counted in her favour. However that works out, I couldn't even get my head around that. He went on to explain that since the fire she had, I quote, built a whole new life for herself, in which she had raised four children, the eldest two of which had serious medical issues, and which was now left in tatters. But at the appeal hearing, Lord Justice Pitchford said, the judge specifically took account of the fact that, since a crime, she had made a new life for herself and that there would be an impact on her children and her own family life because of the length of sentence. She had not shown any degree of real remorse, so there was no room for exceptionally lenient treatment. Public condemnation had to take first place, and the public interest had to prevail. The sentencing judge said he was quite sure her simmering resentment and anger towards the family was her motivation for involvement in the fire that night. As a result, Lord Justice Pitchford dismissed the complaints and refused the application for appeal. Following this decision, Shanaz Khan told the Oxford Mail that the family was relieved and could now get on with their lives, saying, It was really good news, we are very happy. It was upsetting because they had to go back through some of the facts of that night and the details can be really distressing, especially for our mum. It was a worry waiting for the outcome, because you never know for sure what will happen. It is definitely a big relief, and I think that's the end of it now. We can get on with our lives and put this behind us. Nazmin Khan, meanwhile, reflecting on this, said afterwards, She said it had ruined her life, but she needs to stop for a moment and think about our mother. Every night she needs to think about what our mother has gone through. She will never see her children again, but Fiaz will one day be able to walk free and see her own children. She is only thinking about herself. I hope every night until she dies, she thinks about what she did, taking those two children away. Now I hope that she, and each member of the convoy that night, does too. I hope it haunts them to the dying day. On the 20th anniversary of Majid and Anum's deaths, members of their family and friends gathered for a charity cricket tournament at Horsebath Cricket Club in memory of the two children, particularly honouring Majid's love of the sport. Cheney School pupil Majid had been a talented cricketer and had played for teams including the Rover Cowley and Oxfordshire youth teams, so the Majid and Anum Memorial Cricket Tournament was launched in his and his sister's memories. The High Wycombe Kashmiris faced off against the Tigers in the final, with the latter team, who were ultimately crowned the champions, being made up of many of Majid's school and his closest friends who came to play. Not only did the event raise more than £3,000 for cancer research, but it was also a chance for many of his friends to reflect upon the wider lasting impact of the fire, not so much to remember Majid, because he wasn't forgotten by them for a second, but to reflect upon the loss and the waste of a blossoming life. Twins Ian and Philip Evans, who had been through school with Majid since they were five, were two of those who played for the Tigers, and Philip Evans told the Oxford Mail newspaper, 
He always had a smile on his face and wanted everyone to be positive. He was a man full of life, he loved his family and friends, and his older cousins were often topics of a post-weekend conversation. He was a popular guy, especially with the ladies, and was renowned for his beaming smile and infectious laugh. He was a loyal and passionate friend who would always be there if you needed him. He was also a quick and slippery swing bowler who also batted with fantastic balance and timing, who was comfortable scoring both sides of the wicket. At 35, I often wonder what he would be like today. Now I have my own children, I think, would he have children now? At the start, I felt guilty about going on holiday and doing things he would never be able to, but I eventually realised he'd want me to be happy. I have no doubt we would all still be close. I miss him. 25-year-old Sonia Nawaz, meanwhile, was just five years old when she lost who she described as her big sister, Anum. She described a little girl who, forever in her beloved blue coat, loved dancing and putting on a show for those closest to her, yet one who was painfully shy in the company of strangers. Sonia told the Oxford Mail, she was my mother's cousin, but we were the girls closest in age to each other in the family, so we spent a lot of time together, and she was like my big sister. At that age, I didn't understand what had happened, only that it was good times, and then there was something massive, and she was gone. A memorial garden for her was created at Annum's old school, the former SS Mary and John Primary School in Hartford Street. But when this became the Compa Foundation Stage School in 2004, it was decided to reinstate the garden to its original glory, as it had by that time fallen into disrepair. Funded by the school and donations from the local community, today the garden includes flower beds, a sculpture of a red kite, a water feature, and an area for a pagoda where jasmine, which was always one of Anum's favourite plants, is grown. One of the teachers at the school was Anum's sister Anis, who's helped set the project up and who said at the time it was created, Anum loved this school and would always come home very excited with lots to tell us about. I always wanted to be a teacher and I think it was meant to be that I would end up working at the school which Anum went to. The garden is a place where children can come and have some quiet time, learn about gardening or read a story, it can be used as an outdoor classroom. Anum had a wonderful time here, so we're very pleased that she's been remembered in this way. Now from such darkness do come some chinks alight, however tiny, but the ripples of evil spread so far and so wide, don't they? Hakan Mohammed Nawaz and Haroon Sharif each remain serving their sentences to this day parole having been denied for each of them on several occasions due to their constant denials of culpability in the crime. But Alan Swanton, Thomas Liedel and Riaz Munchi have each long since been released, their minimum sentences served. Fiaz Munchi herself will shortly have served two-thirds of the sentence imposed upon her for manslaughter, and could one day in the not-too-distant future be released on life licence able to pick up the strands of the life that she'd made for herself that she should have been denied to for many years. The Khan family, who not only lost their children, but everything that they owned in the fire, rebuilt and still today live at number 156 Magdalen Road. But members of the family also still to this day sleep with a light on and cannot get to sleep until after 3.30am when they feel they can relax their hypervigilance after the 3.10am time that the arsonists struck that night, almost 24 years ago. A lasting reminder of the horror that was inflicted upon them. So a truly awful tale as usual to begin the new series with then, and the words of the Khan family, the loss that they still must feel to this day, will stay with me, they really will. The case recounted in the opening episodes is one of several that I earmarked for researching around a similar topic, and it's amazing how many you actually find, and what kind of a horrific trend actions such as this seem to be. But there was just so much to this one that I stuck with it, and it's become a double-parter.
And where do you start with it exactly? Because the whole thing seems such a tragic waste, doesn't it? So much waste to so many lives. I mean, there's rowing with people and feuding with families, but for it to end in such horror, to be so hell-bent on causing a family distress or loss, that you travel more than an hour, armed with knives to inflict disfigurement and petrol to cause, at the very least, severe damage or destruction. But not only that, that you even have someone so much under your influence that they are willing to recruit several other people to take part in such sordid actions. Something else that, isn't it? You're talking about unsavoury characters anyway, to say the very least here, with each of them found guilty of causing the deaths, clearly having the propensity to commit such horror in them anyway. Perhaps some of them were stupid or immature enough to be easily led, but the propensity is still in each of them, I believe. All of the occupants of each car that evening set off on that journey knowing, admitting, that they were heading there for the purposes of violence. I did raise my eyebrows to discover that both Moon and Kutan did not face charges either, because I believe that this plan was discussed before they set off that evening, and they would have known this at the very least as soon as the vehicle stopped to fill up a petrol canister. Plus, the bottles of Tango had already been pre-primed to be able to squirt fuel, so surely the knowledge is there beforehand, isn't it? I don't think they have remorse, both of their stories, to me, seemed crafted to distance themselves from as much culpability as they possibly could. They looked out with it, and I hope that the actions of that evening in August 1997 have, and continue, to haunt both of them. I also hope that the time that's been spent in prison by the Nawaz brothers, Swanton, Lidl, Sharif, and Riaz Munchi, has been filled with the same haunting thoughts and are and were difficult sentences for them to serve, filled with contempt from others due to their vile crimes. Though much has been made of Haroon Sharif as being the suggested actual instigator behind the crime, we also have no doubt in my mind that Fiaz Munchi is the actual linchpin that the entire sordid affair revolved around, and for all of her denials of knowing anything about the crime beforehand, going there only because she was afraid of Hak Nawaz, not being aware Swanson and Lidl were even in the other car, and denying that she'd fled to Pakistan to escape justice. Well, that's just horseshit, isn't it? Simply a case of her trying to save her own skin. To be so consumed with hatred and desire for revenge that she armed herself with a craft knife, intending to slice open someone's face and slice off their fingers to have the contempt to yawn and say no comment in interview, and to be so hard-faced not to show any emotion at trial except for herself. Well, far from this being a case of where did it all go wrong for someone, it seems to me that this is a case of evil personified. Evil that could very soon be released. What do you guys think about that? I would love as always hearing your thoughts and feedback concerning both parts of the episode The Burning, which you can do so in the usual way. Some things don't change through a break at all. The episode thread is still up in the show's Facebook discussion group for you to do so. Or you can reach out through any of the show's social media links if you want to have your say. I'm not hard to find at all and I'm always happy to discuss. I'll wrap up here now then and crack on with prepping my next earmarked tale of series 6, which I shall be back with very soon also. I thank you guys very kindly for joining me here today back for the new series, and all that remains for me to say, and I'm sure that you can guess by now, is that I've been, I still am, and hopefully still will be Paul, the true crime enthusiast, wishing you guys all good and safe times, stay safe out there everyone, because we're not just out of the woods quite yet and I shall speak to you very soon. Take care all, and goodbye for now.